I came across something interesting the other day as I was preparing the lessons. It said the six most important words. I admit I made a mistake. The five most important words. You did a good job. The four most important words. What do you think? The three most important words. After you, please. The two most important words. Thank you. The one most important word. We. The least important word. I. We often use the word I more than any other pronoun. We like to talk about ourselves. We like to go it alone at times. We like to prove that we by ourselves are good enough and that we can do whatever we want. But God never intended for us to go through life alone. He never intended that from the beginning of the foundation of the world. That is why He created woman, so that Adam would not have to go through life alone. That's why we get married, so that we'll never be alone. That's also why He created the church. So that when we become His children, we don't have to try to take on the powers of this world. And we don't have to try to lift up the banner of Christ by ourselves. But rather, together, collectively, we do that. Not I. It's interesting to see the analogies, and I appreciate Ron and his talk and I appreciate some of the things he mentioned, Band of Brothers. I, too, have seen those commentaries, those real men talking about their experience. And they're talking about the brotherhood, this, this family that they made that realistically down in the trenches of warfare, that's all they had was each other. It amazes me we can see that in physical war, but we fail to see it in spiritual warfare. And this goes on today. I ran across an article entitled, Soldiers Create Brotherhood in Iraq. And uh, specialist uh, Jeffrey Martyr said, it's more of a brotherhood than anything else out here. We're with each other 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And Private First Class Matthew Taylor, he's a combat medic. He said, when you're out here and you have to trust your life to your friends, it brings you a little bit closer. He went on to say, I treat them like I do my brothers. I have younger brothers and a younger sister. They are as much my family as my own family. If they need something, I'm there for them and they're there for me. Is that not what we're supposed to be like? That if I need something, you're there for me. And if you need something, I'm there for you. But I tell you what part of the problem is, is we don't really want that. And we don't want to put the effort and the energy sometimes it takes into being that. Did you notice he said, well, we're a brotherhood, we have no choice. We spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week together. I tell you, one of our problems is we think we can create the same on just about four hours a week. Some even less than that. We are at war. And we are fellow soldiers. And we are combat ready. 
And we're in the middle of a war zone. And the reality is, if we're going to be successful, we've got to know one another. Now, let me be very bold in saying this right now. I know, I know there are some of you who are here this morning that I may not see again. And i got to be honest, we sometimes think about lessons like this and we say, well, we don't need to hear that. We don't need lessons about getting connected. We're at church. Everything's fine. Brethren, i got to tell you, just to be honest, I saw your board. Everything's not fine. That's just the reality of it. And every place that has a board that posts the numbers up there, we can tell things aren't fine. You know, we get excited as preachers. We get together talking about preacher talk, and if we get 80% of people to come back on Wednesday night, boy, we've done great things. 80%! I tell you, that scares me. The reason we don't get close relationships, they're not automatic. It's not easy. I can't just purchase it. We, we live in an immediate gratification world. We want everything to be taken care of for us. We want to pay for it and be delivered. We want everything given to us. No, that's not going to happen. If you're going to have the kind of relationships we need as God's people to be the kind of congregation and to be able to survive the wiles of the devil like we, you've got to put forth time and energy. You've got to cultivate that. And that doesn't come in just three hours a week. It's not possible. Dr. James Dobson tells a story about one time where he spoke at a seminary. And he spoke on the needs for relationships and the needs to be united. And he talked about how they needed to be close and together and what that would accomplish for them. And a while later, he got a letter from a student who lived in a house with five other guys. And and, in that letter, he talked about how much that Dr. Dobson's talk impacted him. And he said, but it wasn't until after you left that we realized the necessity of what you were saying. The student went on to talk about how that one of the students in that seminary who lived in that house was so distraught over his life and the struggles he's in, he went in their basement and he hanged himself. And they found him five days later. Five days later. We have to face reality. Reality is, it happens to us. We are not connected like we should be. And we're not protected because of that. But sin is everywhere. And so I am constantly going places. And if I don't have God's people with me, a phone call away, and I don't have God, a prayer away, if I'm not connected to both of them, and I'm walking out in the real world and I go to my job or I go to school or I go across the street and sin's around me, who is going to be there to fight the fight with me? The writer of Ecclesiastes said, as we saw this morning, two are better than one. For if one comes and fights, one may withstand, but two will withstand, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. The reality is we are not as strong by ourselves, never will be, as, as we can be together. And it's amazing to me that with the inventions we have in technology of cell phones and, and email and all of the ways we can communicate so quickly, 
we have the ability to be connected better and stronger and more quickly than ever before on the history of the face of the earth. But perhaps we're so busy with everything else, we just aren't. I don't have to send a letter by Pony Express to ask someone to pray for me anymore. I don't have to send a messenger from here to Rome to get a letter delivered. And yet, we seem to have broken down our fellowship at times. We need better relationships, open relationships. We need to be assimilated. What is assimilation, you might ask? And that's a good question. It's close relationships. It's, it's coming together. I want you to think about what our normal conversation is when you come into the building. That You know, show up at the building, talk conversation if you've not talked much during the week. And you see somebody go, how are you? Good? You? Yep. Kids all right? Yep. Wife doing good? Yep. Boy, some weather we're having out there, isn't it? Sure is. Oh. Yep. Did you see that UT game yesterday? Yep. Different quarterback. He used to be incompetent. Now he's not. We talk about all these small, silly things. That's not getting connected. That's not what we're really talking about. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what we're going to talk about this week. We're talking about getting fully connected. Assimilation, Webster's doesn't help a whole lot. Here's, here's the definition. kind of gets a little bit confusing. Change of a sound in speech so that it becomes identical with a similar or a neighboring sound. Incorporation of conversion of nutrients into protoplasm that in animals follows digestion and absorption, and higher plants involves both photosynthesis and root absorption. Well, there's part of that we can take. It is kind of the idea of sounds that become so close that they sound alike to one another. But we're not talking about animals or sounds or plants. We're, we're talking about people. So here's my definition. It is the function of the family of God as a participants or participants relating to, working with, and caring for others whom I know and I love. When we talk about assimilation, it is that I am a part of this church. I am going to know you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to work with you. I'm going to be open with you, and I'm going to allow you to have that with me. And you need to be reminded this is not automatic. Just because you go and meet with the others and say, hey, we want to be part of the Franklin Church of Christ. All right. We get up and announce. So-and-so's decided they want to work in the church here. Great. Outstanding. We give them a directive. Now we're connected. We got a directive. We got everybody's phone number. We're connected. That's not how it works. It takes effort. It takes time. It, it takes reaching out. It takes putting in work. You may remember the movie Men in Black. You remember they had a little device. They would reach into their pocket after they talked to somebody and, and they would take out a, a little device and they would, they would click it, look like a pen, and what would happen? Everybody's memory would go blank. It would just go blank. And that was pretty neat. You know, sometimes as a kid, my mom says, sometimes as a kid, I wish that would have worked. Just take out a pen, <laughs> blame it on my sister, nothing was my fault. Memory go blank. Doesn't work that way. It's as if we think in the church that we can kind of, okay, somebody's a member, let's pull out the device. All right, now we know everything about everybody. We're all family. Doesn't work that way. Never will. Serious, open relationships are not going to happen to us. They are going to happen among us. 
There's a difference. It's not something that happens to you accidentally on purpose. It's something you set out to do. I am going to be close to my brethren. I am going to make an effort. I'm going to get close to them. I'm going to get stronger. This is not a place where we can be spectators and we can sit around and let a few of the people that go up front and do stuff do their thing and then we get to go home. That's not how it works. And that's not the intent. And neither is the intent of God's design of the church so that we can have a group of people to sing with and to to listen to some guy scream from the pulpit for 30 minutes. That's not what it's about. He did not design the church so we'd have a reason to assemble. He designed the church to help us fight sin. And we assemble to accomplish that until we go home. We assemble to encourage one another and to lift each other up. And to create in one another love and good works. That's what the Hebrew writer said. But let's go for a moment as we are going to all week to the Hebrew model. We began this morning looking at the children of Israel. And and we saw how that this group of people are delivered from Egypt. And God shows Himself to be faithful and He leads them and guides them and He protects them. He gives them manna. He gives them everything they need. And they spy out the land and here they've seen God's continual hand of providence. And they go, nope. Can't do it. People are too big. Too big. There's giants over there. We're grasshoppers. And so God says that, well, this generation's not going to go. And so for 40 years, those people wander the land. And that older generation dies off. And then as we've had our brother read to us from Joshua chapter 1, Moses dies at the end of Deuteronomy. And Joshua, who'd always been Moses' assistant from what we can tell, Joshua is told by God, Moses is dead. It's time for you to step up and leave. It's your turn. I have to imagine that would be a little scary. It'd be a little scary to replace Moses. Can you imagine replacing the guy that brought down the Ten Commandments from the mountain? Who then, because of his righteous indignation, broke them and ground them up and made a nation drink that water? And then went back up and got another set. And then came down and he's the same Moses who who lifted up his hands earlier and and divided the Red Sea. The same Moses who's given out laws about quail and manna and, and instructed about the bronze serpent. That Moses who's delivered water from the rock and made bitter water become sweet by throwing a tree in it. That Moses is gone. And now Joshua. Joshua has to take his place. And it would have been scary except for the fact that God says to him, No man, verse 5, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Moses had motivation. He had reassurance. But now the people need this. And how did they do that? I want us to notice four principles of assimilation from Joshua chapter 1. How did they come together behind this new leader, this man who was taking the place of one of the most historic leaders in the world, in the history of the world, let alone the most historic of the nation of Israel? How does he do that? And how do the people stand behind him? And how do they come together? The first thing I want to share with you from the text is that they relied on God for their future. Notice again in Joshua chapter 1. That God and Joshua in verse 1 are in close communication. 
Joshua comes and talks, or the Lord comes and talks to Joshua. And in verse 2, there's this clear plan that's set forth. Moses is dead. Now, you go over the Jordan, you and all these people, into the land I'm giving you. And then verse 3, every place the sole of your foot treads, I will give to you. You ever thought about how amazing that promise was? Every place you step, that's yours. That's yours. Verse 4, from the wilderness, this land as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, it will be your territory. No man shall stand before you. Joshua is promised success, and thereby the people are as well. These promises are not just to Joshua, they're to the entire nation. Anywhere this nation's footsteps, they receive. No man shall stand before the nation of Israel. No one will defeat them if they're with God, because God is with them. And these people were unintimidated. And they believed and they agreed, even though they were going to be outnumbered, even though they were taking on multiple nations, and later on we see in the history of Joshua, they take on a a, a confederacy of five nations at one time. But these people were unintimidated. Why? Because they relied on God to provide for their future. You ever thought about modern day Joshua's? I think of men who travel overseas and leave their families behind to teach the gospel. In complete trust and go often into areas that are questionable and certainly areas that are dangerous. I think those as modern day Joshua's. Why? Why can they do that? Because they're trusting God with the future. Because as they go, they trust that God's going to bring them home. I think of of men who've moved to small struggling churches to work in spreading the truth without ample support and without leadership. Why do they take that on? Because they trust God. They rely on Him for the future. I think of men who take on the daunting task of serving as shepherds of flocks all over this country and the world, serving as elders, who take on added accountability and responsibility. Why do they do that? Because they're relying on God and His plan. And they trust Him for the future. Can you imagine replacing Moses? One of only two remaining people from this generation, Joshua, Caleb. Joshua replaces Moses. He had seen how short-sighted the Israelites had been. He had heard all of the complaining. He was there when they said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to die? Were there not enough graves? He was there when he said, oh, that we could have eaten the meats and the cucumbers and the leeks and the garlics and onions in Egypt. Why did you bring us out here? We're so tired of manna. He was there. He was there when people rose up against Moses and made accusations against him. He saw all of those things and now he's taking that place. How could he do that? We didn't read all. At the beginning there, start looking in verse 6. God goes on to say, Be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law of Moses my servant commands you. Do not turn from it to the right or the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. God says, you be strong and courageous, I'm with you. You be strong and courageous wherever you go, I am going. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you as long as you don't turn to the left or the right from the law of Moses. Friends, you've got to remember that God is with us as long as we don't turn to the left or the right. But if He is truly with us and we're not doing that, we need to be reminded not only of these words, but the words of Paul. What shall we say to these things? 
If God is for us, who can be against us? These people were able to come together, first and foremost as a nation, and take on this great, daunting task of conquering Canaan under a new leader, one that had been untested in many ways, because they relied on God. They rallied around the Lord to provide for the future. They kept His promises close to their heart. They knew He would keep them and deliver them. Secondly, we see that they accept the challenge without fear, without failure. Now think for a moment. They are told, we read these words, be strong and courageous, and I appreciate that song that we, that we led. Just think, that's God's providence that Jimmy sold Phil's song so we could sing that. That's how that works. Be strong and courageous. That phrase appears four times in chapter 1, verse 6, verse 7, verse 9, verse 18. Over and over again, there is this phrase, be strong and courageous. The ninth verse comes right out and says, be strong. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Today we'd say, don't be stressed out. Don't get intimidated. Don't be afraid. You know, at any time that there's something out there new to be accomplished, there's this lurking giant on the horizon of life called fear. And it's the fear of the unknown, fear of what's going to happen. And what we do is we often cower because we're afraid. What if we fail? What if we fail? I have to tell you, that's what's taking the land of Canaan. It seems to be so amazing, so incredible, so humanly impossible. They were already told that the land was great, things were good. But many in this same generation had heard the first ten spies. Many were old enough to understand. Those men had said, we can't take it. We're grasshoppers. These are giants. And this generation says, we don't care. We're going to take on the impossible. Because God is with us and we will not fail. They accepted this challenge. You know what's interesting to me is we're kind of a contradictory of sorts. We get together in a business meeting setting, for instance, and we start with a word of prayer. We pray for wisdom and pray that the right thing is done and that God and everything will do, that He make things happen, that He'll take care of us. And then we discuss some certain matter, we throw up our hands and we say, well, it's just hopeless, we shouldn't do anything. I don't understand that. With God, there are no hopeless situations. With God, the word hopeless is not in our vocabulary. With God, there is always hope. We may not understand the path correctly yet. We may need wisdom to find the way out of the cave. But there is always hope. So what did they do? They took courage courage, and they prepared. Look at verse 10 starting. We've not read this yet, but look at starting in verse 10 in chapter 1. Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp, command the people, prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan, to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses the servant of the Lord commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land of, that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them. Until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as He's done to you, they will take possession of the land that the Lord is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession, shall possess it, and the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. They go and they take charge and they get ready and they get prepared. And all of the men put on their armor and they get ready to go to war. 
There's a couple of things I notice here. The first thing is they, they provide provisions. They get ready. They go ahead. They didn't stand around and say, well, you know, what do you think about this? You think we ought to do this? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more comfortable here at home than I am going off to places like Jericho and Ai and fighting battles. Do we really want to try this? You trust Joshua? Well, they went and got ready. Well, I know that God says we can beat those giants. And, and I know that Joshua says that we can, but, well, they got ready. Secondly, they ignored their tribal differences. They didn't go and say, we know, look, we're from Reuben. I don't know if you figured this out or not, but we don't want to fight with Benjamin. Because we're not Benjaminites. And they're, we're, they're not, we don't want to fight with them. We're different than they are. No. They didn't do that. They didn't demonstrate a lack of selfishness, thirdly. This was not about self. And even with Joshua, this was not about Joshua. This was about the nation of Israel receiving the promise of their land and taking it because God said so. And they went. And they moved out in faith. And we know from the rest of the story, they conquered the land. Did they have setbacks? Absolutely. But did they receive it? Yes. Because they accepted the challenge. They ignored, thirdly, what we learn is they ignored their differences and closed their ranks to be unified. Look at verse 16. And that you've commanded us, they answered Joshua, they commanded you commanded us, we will do, and wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with us, you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels, notice this, this in verse 9, uh, 18, whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever he commands you, command him, shall be put to death. And here it is. Only be strong and courageous. Here's a group of people. Here's a group of people who know failure and unbelief and defeat. In fact, this group, this generation, for the majority of their lifetime, their, their life has been spent wandering around in the wilderness because their parents and their grandparents were failures. Because they didn't trust God. Because they weren't willing to take on the challenge. And so that's just all they've known. But here, in remarkable faith, they come to Joshua and they say, wherever you send us, we're going to go. We are one. We are one nation. We're going where you send us. And whoever doesn't do what you say, could be put to death. What words of affirmation. It's now time to close ranks and forget the differences and forget the past and forget whatever wounds and problems that had been. Have you ever thought what a refreshing atmosphere it must be when God's people come together as one, when one goal in mind, not dwelling on past and former things, just marching forward to the goal? The old song, Onward Christian Soldier. Many times there's a verse that's left out. Listen to this verse. Like a mighty army, move the church of God. Brothers, we are treading where the saints have trod. We are not divided. All one body we. One in hope and doctrine. 
one in charity. We are not divided. Is it possible to be that united today as a church? Is it possible to be that close as one? Because we realize Satan's going to do anything he can to defeat us. And he starts often by dividing us. Satan's favorite tactic is divide and conquer. His favorite way to cause problems and to cause us to not be unified is to just put a little seed of doubt or criticism within the body of Christ and to get this side of the building talking about that side of the building and to talk about the leadership and how they failed or the preacher and how he failed or the Bible class teacher or to put all the little things along the way to get us to spend more time bickering amongst ourselves than fighting together to feed Him. And you know what is sad about that? He has been successful at it. He has mastered it. He's good at it. And the reason so often we are not unified marching forward and looking towards the enemy to defeat him is because we're too busy dwelling on past things that just don't matter anymore. We are tearing each other apart about things that happened years ago. It is time to grow up, get over it, and march onward. What if the people of Israel had sat back and said, well, you know, I, I just don't Reuben to come with us. They, they opted out of this side of the land. They just went for the easy way. They wanted the land over there and you gave it to them and I wanted it. Well, come on, you got to fight with Reuben. No, I'm not going to fight with Reuben. Well, come on, you got... No! You know what he did? You know what that prince of Reuben did to me 15 years ago? And the reality is, we are so often united in hope and we're united in doctrine, we have no idea what it means to be united in love. We have the truth. I think so often we have the truth. We know what the truth is. We know what we should do. But when we aren't united in love, we don't have the patience. Not to tolerate sin, but to tolerate our petty differences. We don't have the patience. And we can't love past our differences. And what happens is we become weak rather than strong. And in order for you to be successful, you've got to put all that aside and you've got to close the ranks. You've got to come closer together. You've got to stand shoulder to shoulder. And you've got to march forward and deal with what's coming. We love to read that passage in Philippians 3 where Paul says that we've not already obtained it, but reaching forward, pushing on. We forget the part where he says, that he leaves the things behind him. We can't move forward by clinging to the past. Oh, if it needs to be dealt with, with confession and repentance, if it's sin, deal with it. But deal with it and move on. Put the differences aside. Close the ranks. Be unified. March forward. And finally, they abandoned themselves to the plan. They fixed their attention on God. Did you see that in verse 16 and 17? Anybody who doesn't do what you say will put him to death. 
and we'll obey you just as we obeyed Moses. And may God be with you as He was with Moses. Notice what he says here in verse 16, this true abandonment, all that you command. He didn't say, the nation of Israel didn't say, you know, Joshua, we'll listen to you when we like what you say. We'll, we'll go along when we agree with you. And we'll talk more about it, but don't you think there are times that they probably didn't agree with Joshua? I mean, just think about this. You're going to go play for the battle of Jericho, and Joshua says, hey, we're going to walk around the city one time for six days. Okay? Are we intimidating them? We trying to we try to scare them down? What's the plan, Joshua? And we'll talk about that more tomorrow, but the reality is, reality is they made a promise, they kept it. Everything you say, we'll do it. Wherever you send us, we'll go. That's total, total abandonment to self will and total submission. We will heed you. Isn't it interesting that this this generation, this is the generation that descended from the grumbling mob of people who said they were grasshoppers, and now they're saying, wherever you send us, we'll go. doesn't matter who's there. We'll heed you. All that you say, all that you command, we'll do. Isn't it interesting that the children of spoiled nomads who struggled against Moses and doubted the promises of God now commit themselves to God's plan with reckless abandonment and total faith. How do you explain that? How do you explain that? How does this generation rise up with more faith than the one before it? How does that happen? There's only one explanation. Their eyes were fixed on God. They had seen His hand of providence. They understood it. They believed it. They never doubted it. There was no reluctance. They were going to walk with God. His will was their will. There was no difference. And this is the most important point. You have to take this with you that we will not be assimilated if we do not realize that it all hinges on our faith in God's power and His deliverance. We will never be united in this war against sin and as a congregation until we are united with God and we fully trust Him and believe Him. It is impossible to come together if you don't come to Him first. It will not happen. So what are the implications of all of this? Let me just speak in some specifics as we close. What's the implications and ramifications for the church, the local church? Churches need to get together in their local body, the members of that church. They need to pull together and focus on the common goal and put the petty differences aside. You know, for most of my life, having, quote, grown up in the church, I've heard of division after division after division, and it's always been explained in most cases, many of them, for what happened. Well, there was just some personality problems. Personality problems. For too long, we've been crippled by personality problems. And petty issues. i got to tell you, I get frustrated at times with my brethren. I love what I do. I love working among God's people and spreading the gospel. There's nothing else I could ever imagine doing 
But I've got to tell you, I've been, I've been the victim of pettiness before. You know, when people complain about that you didn't go out of your way to walk the aisles and shake every hand, and i got to tell you, part of the problem with that, you, you're in a building of 250 people. That's kind of hard to do in the five minutes we have. Or that this person didn't talk to me, or, or, or I asked this person not to do this and they did it anyway, or, or this person doesn't like me. Well, how do you know? Well, this happened 12 years ago. Or this person's a better song leader than that person, and that person sitting never leads singing again, and why can't the elders see that? Why'd you have that guy in a meeting? I'd go ahead and take care of that one. I gotta tell you, those things, that is the devil. That is Satan working among, he's walking the aisles. He's here. He's tempting us. He's trying to work on us. He's trying to divide us. And he knows that we are so fickle that if he can just get something placed in our mind, we will lose all of our concentration on what is right and what is good and what is pure and what is holy and saving other souls and helping each other and encouraging and edifying them. And we will tear ourselves apart. And there are churches and empty buildings everywhere that serve as gravestones and memorials to what personality problems do when Christians don't mature and grow up and have faith. And it is time that we quit thinking so much of ourselves and we start thinking about God and the goal and start pushing onward and carrying the banner. And I'll tell you what else it means. What else it means for us as God's children and the local church is that as individuals, my closest friends and companions ought to be in this room right now. It is impossible for us to get unified if we care for more for worldly people than for God's people. Worldliness and immorality has not crept into the church necessarily from Christians as much as it is from Christians who don't put the right priority in it. And often that starts with friendships. Now understand what I'm saying here. Not everybody in this room needs to know your greatest fears and your darkest secrets and your biggest challenges. Not every single person needs to know what your greatest giant you face is and what the greatest fear you have is. But somebody in this room does. Somebody in this room that shares your faith and serves the same Lord and God as you do needs to know the things you struggle with because they're the one that can go and put their arm around you and pray with you and lift you up. And your friend at the gym or at work or across the road at Mother's Day Out or wherever it may be, that friend that doesn't share the faith you do cannot do that. You need to have a close friend that you can share things with here and that you can share eternity with as well. We need to get united to one another. In our acquaintances, we need to risk getting related to one another. And what that really means is don't wait on the other person. 
You know, we sometimes sit there and you go, well, we need to practice hospitality, so who have we had over? So you, sometimes you may get the director out, you turn through it, and you go, well, we can have so-and-so. Well, they've never had us over before. And that's really my problem when people say, well, so-and-so never talks to me. Then go talk to them. We all have the responsibility of extending ourselves to one another. And if someone else is not doing that for us, then it's our task to go to them. And the same thing when somebody does something that offends me, and I sit back and I kind of cross my arms and go, well, they did it. They've sinned against me. They've got to come apologize to me. I tell you, real brethren will go over and say, hey, look, you may not realize this, but this is what happens. I really have a problem with it. We need to talk about it because it's harming our relationship. And I want to put that aside. And I want to be your brother. We can make the first move. And finally, this all requires give and take a little bit. A little give and take. One of our elders had to do some arbitration at one time, some negotiations, and he has a statement he makes. And I think it's very applicable to the brotherhood. He says, in a good negotiation, both sides give up something. Now think about that. In a good negotiation, both sides of the conflict have to make compromises to come together. When it comes to brethren, we're going to have to all make sacrifices and compromises at times, not of our convictions, not of our faith, but of personal things to be able to come together as one. I am a a faithful Tennessee Vols fan. I named my son Peyton. Does that tell you anything? I know that Wesley is an Alabama fan. And I know that Rusty is a Kentucky fan. Not that he really watches football, because Kentucky doesn't have a football team. We all know that. Sorry, that's a little dig, Rusty. And as silly as that is, you know what? We can still be brethren despite that, can't we? Well, maybe not after that Kentucky comment. But and I know that seems kind of silly and kind of small and kind of petty. Oh, we never let that be in the way. Well, I've got to tell you, we say that, but when I've heard of people dividing over the color of the carpet, really? Really? Give and take. Gotta compromise. What's, what's really saddening is sometimes we're more stubborn with the little things than we are the truth. I've seen brethren that will compromise on truth before they will other things. How sad that is. This is not going to be automatic, but we need to get assimilated. We need to become one. You and, and everybody around you, you need to become one body. There are many members of it, but we are one. And the reality is, I am responsible for that. I am responsible to do my part to make that happen, and you are responsible to do your part to make that happen. And as we see from the Hebrew people, as they go to take the land, they did that. They came together, but it started, it started with God. They relied on God.
And so as we end this morning, realize as we ask God to help us be closer and to be stronger, it starts with you making sure you are first right with God. You cannot have the unity with each other if there is sin between you and God. You cannot be united if you are separated from the one thing that unites us, and that is the Creator Himself. And so as we end this morning, we simply ask you, are you walking with God? Is your heart right with Him? Are you with Him in such a way that you can be with His people? Or is there sin standing in your way? And if that is the case, take care of it. If you're not a child of God, never come to the Lord through the obedience and through the waters of baptism as full obedience to the Gospel of Christ. We'd encourage you to do that this morning. Obey the Gospel. Put on the name of Christ. Be washed from your sins by believing in Jesus and what He's done, repenting of your life, and confessing that He is the Son of God and being baptized so you can wash those sins away. If you've not done that, we'd encourage you to do that now. And maybe you've done that, but you've fallen away again. You're not united because you're not united with God. As a falling Aaron Christian, all that God asks is that you confess your sin to Him. And He is faithful and righteous to forgive you. And He will do that. If you need to take care of that this morning, we'd encourage you to do that right now while we stand and while we sing this song.